A life in photography is more than just about making photographs. It can be a lifelong journey that includes developing friendships with some of the world's most talented and special people. Stephen Wilkes's career provided him some wonderful opportunities, including photographing Ellis Island, the remnants of the Bethlehem Steel Mill, and traveling to countries including China, Cuba, and India. Of his many friendships, one of the most significant ones has been his longtime association with master photographer Jay Maisel. Jay served as one of Stephen's mentors, and most recently, Jay was the focus of Stephen's first documentary film, Jay Myself. The film tells the story of Jay's move from his legendary home and studio, an old German bank building in the heart of the Bowery in New York City. The film reveals what made that space so unique and the special relationship shared by these two great photographers. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Thanks for making time for me, man. I appreciate it. Oh, this is a pleasure. It's uh, nice to speak with you finally. I know we've tried yeah, for miss. a long time. Yeah. It's been incredible uh, several weeks watching, uh, you know, the, the Master Series. It really has been great. Uh, it's such a wonderful thing that George has done. And I think it's just a great community it's kind of created. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it shapes up. Because mm. I, th- I see it evolving into something beyond what we've already done. Yeah, I think it has the potential to do that for sure. You know, I definitely do. It's a rare thing, you know, uh, unfortunately in our field, uh, I think in, I think part of that is the nature of the competitive nature of what the business became over the last 20 years. But, mm-hmm. you know, there used to be a lot of, I think in the early years of photography, there was a lot of dialogue between photographers and, you know, there was this kind of camaraderie. And I think everybody, um, as the business became more and more uh, competitive and commercialized, it was suddenly people didn't really talk as much anymore. You know, I mean, if you were lucky enough to have a mentor or somebody who was in the business, you could share, you could sound off people, but there was somewhat of a disconnect. And it's really nice to see uh, this kind of uh, connectivity uh, starting to happen again. Is that something that you had when you were coming up as a, as a photographer and that you found helpful? Yeah, I, I, I was very lucky. I think um, I had many mentors as a young photographer. Uh, from the moment I even started, uh, the first time I took pictures through a microscope and you know became engaged in the in the whole idea of taking pictures. I remember I was uh, uh, I was bar mitzvahed when I was you know thirteen, and I the guy who took the photographs of me became my earliest mentor. He taught me wedding photography, so I was I was actually working professionally, literally from, I think I had my own business by the time I was 15 or 16 doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and special events. And that concept though, was, you know, it was because I, you know, I really didn't know any different. I was just so excited about the medium. And I, I think for me, it's always been this sense of, of connecting. I think when someone sees a little bit of themselves in you as Mm -hmm. a photographer, you are very uh, much open to giving that person something, sharing something of yourself with that person. Yeah. And, and I've been very blessed in that I've been able to uh, have a multitude of those type of people come into my life um, over the years. You know, it's so, yeah, for me, it was always about that kind of connection. Yeah. 
You mentioned your first images being uh, created through a microscope, and uh, yeah. I've not heard that before. I've heard a lot of you know first images. What was the the fascination of what you th- saw through that microscope, and then taking it to another level to make photographs that that, that just sort of sparked your imagination? What beyond what you physically saw? What was it about that experience that was so seminal for you? You know, it 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 was seminal uh, in many ways. Let's start, first of all, I was actually really interested in science. So Mm -hmm. at 12, you know, when you begin to sort of explore the micro world or think about looking at something that you can't see with your eye, it becomes almost a form of exploration, really, in a way. I was going to some place that that I really couldn't. um, For me, it was a window almost of escaping whatever my daily reality was, in a way. I felt that I, I love science, but this idea of scientific photography really intrigued me. Like they were talking about doing high speed photography. So it wasn't just micro photography. I was learning how to use like high speed stroboscopic, you know, darkness, you know, vases shattering, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was the youngest kid in the class. Um, It was kind of like one of those pre-college classes. I think for me, the idea of looking through a microscope and taking a picture, it merged probably two of the single threads that, are the the basis for everything I do when I look at the world. And that is I'm, I'm, I'm curious, right? I have this tremendous mm-hmm. curiosity to look at things and I'm fascinated by discovering what I look at, you know, so, fi- finding something, the act of discovery yeah. and the, and, and the act of looking were at the basis of that. I think that experience. And so for me, it has always been, you know, in a strange way, really, um, almost like a blueprint in a way, as a young, young developing photographer, that became like the guideposts. I knew right then and there that that if I could stay in that space, then this was what I loved to do more than anything, was to look and to discover. Yeah. I mean, I know that photography is really about making discoveries. Yes. And that that's, that's really where the joy comes from. Because sometimes... For me, it's not actually the making of the photograph that I find mo- most exciting is the moment right before where all of a sudden I see something and I go, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, if I could if I could put all of this stuff together, it would be amazing. And the challenge is, can I pull it off? Right. Uh, you, you sound, you know, it's interesting, uh, Barnick, you sound so much and, and there's so much that uh, we're so similar that way in a sense that we that I there are many times that I will see something that I actually get so excited that I actually have to talk to myself <laughs> to calm down so I can get the picture because I get so excited. So, that you know, there's something magical about that, I think, in the language of photography and, and the practitioners, photographers in general, is um, this childlike joy we all have mm-hmm. uh, at the act of seeing. And that's yeah. really what it's always been for me. It's about I, I am... I get gleeful when I see something and I, I never get tired of it. I never get bored. Um, I'm, I'm doing something. I was just the last, of course, with what's been going on over the last several months in all of our lives, I go for a walk every day. And one of the things that's so has been almost like a meditation for me, but it, it also is a, a wonderful study in, in, in the act of seeing, which is if you were to do the same thing over and over and over again every day, like I go for this walk and I go on the same route every time. Mm-hmm. And I've become very conscious of the fact that it's almost like I want to go on this pathway because I want to see something I hadn't seen before. So yeah. it, it's become this sort of strange and, and beautiful thing that I get to discover every single day. And I think in also in, in a parallel universe, 
uh, I've always looked at my work that way, that um, this idea of being able, you know, so many times people say, well, if you missed it or you shot it, it's good enough, move on. I, I love the idea of going back and revisiting it again and watching it change yeah. and watching it evolve. And, you know, the simplicity of just a, a subtle change in the angle of light makes you see something in a tree that you never saw before, right. or, you know, a flower that opens uh, for me, spring has been something that's been just, uh, I've never seen spring like this before. I'm never home during spring. So I get to, you know, I, I find that, that I'm, you know, I'm always, I come home and I'm, I've missed the cherry blossom or it just rained and I miss everything. So I've been able to sort of witness this um, magical sort of transition. And it's been a very long and very beautiful spring here uh, on the East coast. And I, uh, I do find that that is, um, is something that, again, is, is, is one of the joys I think about uh, is, is the power that we are lucky enough and we're blessed with is, I think, is this need and this joy that we, uh, I think, all photographers find in the act of seeing. You yeah. know? And, that, and that's a, it's, it's a wonderful escape for, the, for anything that goes wrong during the day or in your lives is you know, to find a little bit of joy when you just look at something. I uh, had a really bad flare-up of my sciatica probably seven years ago. Oh, wow. And even with medication and therapy, it was really hard to get around. So I couldn't walk the streets like I used to. So what I started doing is when I walked my dog, I was walking the same route every day. And mm. I had my camera with me. And like you said, each day I would go out there because this would be the only opportunity I had to make any photographs because I'd get back home and couldn't do much. And right. so every day I got to see, can I find something in the same route? And I think I was doing it for about three or four months. And there were such wonderful gifts that got revealed to me during that, that time, like noting that a fence that I had photographed the day before, maybe if I left the house five minutes earlier, I might be able to catch some interesting light. And one great day, I was walking down that street, and someone, I guess, was remodeling their house, and they had these old wood frame windows that they had taken out, and they just leaned up on the curb. <laughs> and it was that. just like as if I had called it in beforehand. It's magical, you know. You know, and, and then you come back the next morning, and those windows are gone, right? You know, right. You, mm -hmm. you know, that's the thing about it. I found a. I was today. I was amazed because there was a snake, a little looked like a small little copperhead snake that somebody had driven over, and it was frozen in its actual movement. So it was this beautiful sort of the way, kind of an S turn, the way a snake, um, mm -hmm. you know, sort of slithers across a roadway, and it was just obviously it must have been a pretty fast car because it was frozen in that moment, but it was impaled onto the roadway, right? So it was a flat object, almost like it was, frankly, it almost looked like a, the beginning of a, like a relief or a, really a, a fossil. Mm -hmm. And I photographed it that first day I discovered it. And then I watched it every day I'd walk, I'd come by it. And, I, and the other night I had photographed it and kind of had forgotten about it. Uh, and I came back a two, two to three days later. And as I'm walking and the sun is kind of late afternoon light, I, I see it where it was, but everything was off of its body except the skeletal remains were embedded into the black tarmac. Oh, wow. And it was just stunningly beautiful. It had evolved, you know, like nature was gradually taking it over. And, you know, I, it's funny because it, I did a series on Ellis Island many years ago uh, where I documented uh, the effects of time 
on a structure, right? On a, and the history and the memory that sort of resonated in that place. And it is a fascinating thing to be able to, uh, to witness that kind of change in the natural world. And, and I think part of uh, one of the things about this time that we're experiencing is, is it is that reflective. It is, it's giving us an opportunity to really look deeper into what our life experience is and what this planet really, you know, is, uh, is going through in a strange way. Yeah. And, and th- that issue of time is something that just goes across all of your work. You know, like your early work from Ellis Island and the Bethlehem steel mill to the stuff, the, the stuff you're doing for day, day to night. And when did you start becoming aware of, cause it seems like it was always there almost intrinsically. So maybe even subconsciously, when did you start becoming aware that, that, that time was as much of a subject matter as whatever physical thing you were photographing? I think my first big trip, you know, I, I, my work is really about, I started to focus on the concept of bodies of work when I was about 19 years old, really. And I, it, it started because I, uh, I was in college and I recognized at that moment that I could see things, right? I had a, I had a clear vision in terms of the way I looked at the world. However, I, I didn't have a singular body of work that someone could look at and say, oh, that's, you know, that's Stephen, you know, that's mm-hmm. him. That's me in that work. That's me in those pictures. And so uh, I, I remember uh, the Syracuse University, I was, went to school at the Newhouse School of Communications. And at the time, the uh, School of Visual Performing Arts was having an historic trip to China. I read about it in the newspaper and I go, oh, my God, I, I got to document this. Maybe I can, I can sell them on the idea like they could pay for my trip and, and allow them usage of the footage you know, that I get to. But they would allow me to come to China to document this historic trip for the uh, School of Visual Performing Arts. And I proposed it and they actually bought it and I actually got to China. And it was when I went to China in 1978, 79, which was a unique experience to be there because you have to recall that, you know, this was two years after Mao had died, two years after the Cultural Revolution had ended in China. Mm. And so what I was looking at was a culture that for all you know, obsessive purposes look like you were in the 1940s. So, you know, I was looking at things based on the way people dressed, the cars, which were, there were essentially no cars. Everybody rode bicycles. The only cars you saw were from the 1930s. They were old Soviet vehicles that only the Chinese diplomats drove. Nobody else had cars. And so the whole thing was as if I was backwards in time. And so I, I'm there photographing and I'm sort of witnessing this place, which is, the, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a 19-year-old kid. I, I've never seen anything like this. I've never really been out of the country before. It was like my first trip. I just, it was so transformative for me to be dropped into China in that moment of time that mm-hmm. it made me really begin to sort of think about how, you know, in a way, photographs, you know, they can, you know, they, 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 they can manipulate you in so many different ways, right? Because when you look at my China work, you might actually think I was there during the 1940s. You know what I mean? You, <laughs> you may not realize that I was there in 1978, 79, but that's the power of, the, of photography. But also it's the fact that our world, we all are in a way uh, affected by very subtle changes. Some cultures change rather quickly. Others take decades, thousands of years. And, one of the things about China for me, after I did those pictures, I started to become more and more intrigued by Chinese history, 
and by history in general. You know, I subsequently went back to China 27 years later because that experience had affected me so much. I wanted to see if I could find the China of my memory. And what I discovered was a, a China that had changed beyond anything I could ever remember. In fact, mm -hmm. every city was unrecognizable to my experience in 78, 79. It was interesting to be able to say it was this slow, almost uh, frozen piece of history that I got I was fortunate enough to see in that moment in time and then to see it 27 years later where it had shifted so radically fast that I don't think any other, frankly, there's no other culture in the world in world history that's ever had that quick a change. Right. You know, I mean, just, just imagine, I don't know how many cars they have now compared to what they had in 1978. Just think about that. Every imagine, you know, so many billion X billion people, learning how to drive suddenly oh. in 10 years. <laughs> so I always, I always say what's fun about China is when you get on the highways, it's as if everybody drives a car like they ride a bicycle. And it's quite literally <laughs> that way. You know? Yeah, because I remember coming up and seeing imagery for coming from China and just seeing thousands and thousands of bikes down the road. Yes, yes. You know, not a yeah. car in sight. Not a just, car in sight. Yeah. No, it was it was an, really an extraordinary. And, you know, they were so backwards in time that um, I used to love. Uh, you remember the early, you know, Ralph Lauren was very popular, like in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. And he used to make really great, like pleated pants and very 1940s look. China was so backwards in 1978 that I remember I bought a pair of Chinese slacks that every, when I came home, everybody thought they were like designer Ralph Lorenz <laughs> because they were so stylized. They were so hip. They were so like, wow, where'd you get those? I go, it's in China. They're making them today. This is what, you know what I mean? They're doing 1940s was current fashion in China at that point in time. So it was kind of That's an funny. amazing experience. Yeah. And that, you know, that really led me down the, this, this, this path, I think, to, um, to look at history in a unique way. I think that that China experience definitely. And it also kind of created for me, I may, I realized after I shot those pictures that there was a power in focusing my energy and in, in creating bodies of work, you know, in creating uh, uh, these, this idea that this was going to be a personal project, that was going to be a personal project. And I started to really think about those things. And I always I think no matter what happened in my career over the decades, I always carved out time for my personal work uh, that allowed me to sort of, you know, feed my soul as a photographer. You, you just said that you were seeing yourself in your work. And do mm -hmm. you think that that for you, that that only came about as a, as a result of creating a body of work and then moving away from just the singular image? It's a great question. I will tell you, there was, I can tell you the picture that is where the first picture I ever took where I felt myself in. Mm -hmm. It's a shot I took of a swimming pool ladder. Um, it was another, at my, another picture, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you know the one I'm talking about. It was an empty swimming pool. That my it was one of the great things I got from my girlfriend, who I broke up with right afterwards. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I, w I went to her summer house, and I remember her parents were kind of like, "What is he doing? He sounds kind of strange. He's he's walking down inside an empty swimming pool." And I was I did this photograph, and I remember at the time I came back and I was just starting to work actually uh, for Jay Maisel at that time. Uh, my my certainly Jay has been the major mentor of my, my life and, uh, and a dear friend. This was a period when I just really met Jay. And I remember I was uh, in New York City. I was in the bank and I was helping Jay with some stuff. I, I was a summer intern. He hired me for a summer, which was 
Like, oh, can you imagine being in college and being Jay Maisel's assistant for a summer? It was like getting a graduate oh, degree or getting yeah. a doctorate. Uh, he was looking, uh, I, I, we were at a light table and we always would look at pictures and talk about pictures. That was part of our, our special connection. I open up my yellow boxes and I, I always used to say every time the Kodak truck came, you know, the delivery or it was fleet messenger service in, in those days that you could one day service, you could put the roll of film in in the morning and then they would messenger it back to 49th street. And I would go back and forth and pick it up, pick up Jay's film. And he would always let me run some of my film on it as well. So I got my orange, you know, my little yellow box came back and it was like, always like Christmas for me opening the box. Right. I mean, I I feel for some of the kids today because they don't know that, that, that sort of um, blind uh, or, you know, just, the fear and the incredible sort of excitement <laughs> that goes in, right? You, you, the fear obviously is like, God, did I hit the exposure? Is it going to be sharp? All that stuff that digital mm-hmm. tells us everything we need to know now instantly. But, you know, in the good old days that with when especially shooting film and slide film in particular, you had to wait to see it. And so I remember I took that picture out and Jay was literally sitting right next to me at the light table. And I was like, I was so excited when I saw this picture, like it was, and I looked, I should Jay look at it and he looked at it and he goes, Oh man, that's a keeper kiddo. That's a keeper, (laughs) you know? And so I knew then that his, um, his reaction even to that image. And, you know, he was always very, uh, very tough. You know, he was very straight shooter with me when he liked something, he'd tell me. And when he didn't think it was up to snuff, but I think, for me, that was a moment where I felt myself in the, for, for the first time in one of my photographs. And, and that became a very exciting thing. And uh, like anything, I think when you, when you have one of those uh, photographs come into your life, uh, they become benchmarks in a way. And you be, really want to strive and push yourself to make, keep making photographs that make you feel that way, right? And then make other yeah. people feel that way in a way, too. So that was it for me, yeah. So how do you, but because uh, I've been asking myself ab- about that because during my recent trip to Japan, that was one of the questions I was asking myself about the imagery I made there. Do I see myself in these photographs? It was hard to be able to verbalize exactly what that means because beyond saying, oh, it's exposed well, it's in focus, it's well composed. What is it about the picture when I do feel that feeling? Is it something that's so so sort of nebulous that there aren't words for it or... Are you able no, I to get sort that. Of- you know, it's just, I feel that when I look at your pictures, I do feel you in your pictures. I think sometimes, and Jay said this, it's it's difficult for us to smell ourselves, and um, mm. and and I think that's really true. I think it starts the process starts by um, having um, there's this emotional connection that I think. Uh, photographs and good art in general, any great art has that, right? It, yeah. it, it makes you feel something. Sometimes it could be, you know, negative or sometimes, but you want to feel something. That's where it starts. And I think the, the reason you feel, I think for me at least, and when I, when I say that, the, when I look at any art and, and photography especially, is that I, I feel like we make decisions that although they go through a lens and they're captured on a piece of film or on a digital back, they live in our mind first before they ever come through the camera lens. And -hmm. I think that when you photograph for many, many years, decades, really, and you you could hear, there's so many photographers that talk so eloquently about this. Uh, Arnold Newman used to feel this way so much, you know, don't, don't tell me it's about the camera. It's not the camera. The pictures live in our hearts and the pictures live in our minds. 
And that is so true. Um, And I think um, Ansel Adams talks about the mind's eye, how, how photographs live really in our mind and the, and the, and the process of, and the act of photographing is just a transference of that, you know? And so I think when you, if you look at your work and try to see, and this, again, it's, it's a certain kind of objectivity you have to sort of, you know, you have to sort of, it's very hard to stay uh, and be so immersed into something that you, you know, it's that old adage, you can't see the forest through the trees. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you step away from it and, and then you, um, you revisit it and your perspective will change, you know, and you will begin to see who you were when you took that picture and what you were thinking about. And I think those are the things that, that begin to speak to you in a way. And I think in a, in a strong way, I mean, Look, I, I was 19 when I did these pictures um, in China. I still love these pictures. They're, I still feel something in these pictures, you know, and I think I don't think that we really the things that we first are drawn to as a young, young developing photographer, the first pictures you've ever taken, the first things you've ever looked at, those things you're still probably drawn to today. Right. They've, they've mm-hmm. evolved, but they're not they're not really different. Right. They're, they're just they're more evolved. And, and so that, that, that language is embedded in us in a way. And as we inform ourselves and the, the greater things we read and the things we see and all the things that happen to us in life, in general, just keep informing that evolution in a way and, and defining it. And, and I think in many ways, uh, reinventing it. Um, so we just keep rediscovering these, these things that, you know, you know, people look at my work and they, you know, when you look at day to night, there's a sort of a perspective uh, that I use to draw people into my work, right? It's really single point perspective. It's if you look at any classical landscape painter, that's what they did. But at the foundation of my work, I mean, I, st- I was doing that when I was 14 years old. I could show, I'll show you pictures, you know, it's 14 years old. I was shooting. It was single point perspective. If you look at it now, you'd go, oh, my God, you can overlay that on this day to night. Or you could overlay that on one of his Ellis Island, you know, corridor shots. And you'd say it's the same picture. Yeah. It's the exact same picture. So that there's there's something to be said uh, uh, about, you know, um, I always say to people, I'm envious of young photographers. I'm always so envious because the world is so fresh. It's so open. It's like, you know, the uh, Picasso said, you know, we try to unlearn everything we've ever learned. Right. In life, mm-hmm. Right. And when you're that beginning part of your life when you we were talking about this the idea of you're you know going out and shooting that that your early work and then you go back and look at it and you go oh, man i wasn't thinking about like you know making money paying my rent yeah. you know family all that stuff you're in a different mindset you're in a different place and that's a, a magical place to be creatively i think but uh, i think i for me i'm 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 very excited about the place i'm in right now too so i think i don't think uh uh as you age it uh it gets worse. I think if you have an ability to uh, maintain that childlike enthusiasm, and that's something that Jay yeah. does. And it's something that, uh, that that's kind of where we connect as, as friends and as artists, it's a, uh, it's a special thing because it's never, ever boring. You know, um, I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to talk to you about, about Jay and, and the film, but I want to I just tell this one story Sure, and we can lead into that. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had taken Jay's uh, workshop in Santa Fe and cause I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And at the time he was in his seventies and then one day I went, what am I waiting for? <laughs> I should just sign up for it. 
It was a great experience, but it was the last the last day, and I was getting in some shooting before I had to drive out to the airport, and I'm making some photographs, and there's Jay making photographs, and he there was a guy I guess with a hot dog stand or something, and Joy Jay had made a photograph, and then he came up to me and he showed me the screen of his D4, and what it, he caught was the reflection of the light off of the grill onto the man's face. And all Jay did was show me the picture, and he had this big smile on his face. He didn't say a word, right? But it was that joy that he had in that moment. And it was like like a little kid. See, 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 what, see what I got? See what I got? And I just thought, when I'm his age, that's exactly where I want to be, right? So Out there shooting and having that, that moment of like, that moment of discovery that he's never lost. Which yeah. is one of the reasons he's he's such such a joy and such a um, uh, a linchpin for so so many people. And you did a great film on the final days in his uh, famous office home, the German Bank Building. Yes, down in. Uh, Thank you. I love I love the film. I'm I'm grateful that I had a chance to be in there and explore a little bit of it. But uh, tell us a little bit about your experience in in the bank building while you were working with, with, with Jay earlier on. And why did you think it was so important to document those, those final days of his, you know, of him living there? It's interesting because China was a, we just spoke about China and China was the moment really I connected with Jay because I had worked for Jay that summer. And Jay said to me, you know, kid, you got to go, you know, start, you, you know, you should, you know, keep shooting and whatever. And that's when I went out and went to China. And then I came back from China and I showed Jay the pictures and Jay said to me, Hey, listen, kid, he goes, you're too, you know, too effing good, man. He goes, you, you, you got you, you to gotta start shooting. You got to start working. You're too good to assist. And I'm like, yeah, well, I, I can, how can I make it? I can't make any money. He says, don't worry. He goes, I got an idea. He said, I'm going to make you my associate. And so he actually made me his associate. I got out of college and, um, Jay said to me, I'm going to teach you the business. You're going to have an office here in my place. I'm going to take 75% of everything you make. And believe me when I tell you, you're lucky in business the first three years of business if you make 25%. At that moment, I, I said, where do I sign? You know, I mean, come on, where do I sign? <laughs> and uh, I remember my first job, I was 21 years old. I got hired by NW Air to go around the world for five weeks doing portraits for AT&T. Okay. They were going to offer me a nice sum of money. And I w- Jay told me, go up to the agency, show my work. I did the whole thing. They go, Jay, they want me to do the job. They offered me this amount of money. And he looks at me. He used to sit back with a cigar. And he takes a big, <laughs> long puff. And he goes, it's not enough fucking money, man. I go, <laughs> not enough money. I said, not enough money. Are you kidding me? I said, I-, I never thought I'd make that much money in a year, let alone five weeks. Plus, I, like, you know, I'd never, you know, I'd never really – gone to Europe and seen anything mm-hmm. like that. So I was like, you know, I was so excited to do this job. And he goes, no, kid, you're going to ask for this. Let me, in. I'm going to tell you what to ask for. And, and so he immediately taught me what my value was. He defined my wow. value. And, you know, he looked at me and said, you're this good kid. You can't charge this amount. Cause if you do that, you hurt all of us right now. So I'm going to show you what your value is. And I had no idea what my value was. And, and it was, that was the kind of thing that happened. And so I, I was his associate for like two years. I stayed there in the bank. And it was through that experience. And of course, the, the summer I worked there before I became his associate, that the bank 
just completely, in a way, changed my life. You know, I I tell the story, and it's so true. In those days, you have to imagine 1979 on on Spring in the Bowery. Okay, it was truly the bottom of the barrel. Uh, you know, you had CBGBs. You had, you know, when I would go to work, I lived out on Long Island, and Jay was paying me uh, as an assistant a hundred dollars a week, and I was as happy as a clam. And he would literally, I'd drive in. And my father, uh, may he rest in peace, he was a, my dad was a really amazing guy, but he never understood this photography thing. He said it was the <laughs> stupidest career move you could ever do, and you're going to starve to death. And he used to make fun of this this job I had because he never knew who Jay Maisel was. And my, my father would always ask questions. He goes, that guy, you know, he's taking advantage of you. And my father was, a, you know, he's a shyster. He's this, he's that. I go... Dad, you don't know what you're talking about, Dad, please. Goes, no, no, no. You, you, Stephen, it's costing you more on gas and parking. So what ended up <laughs> happening was one day my father has a friend who happens to be in photography, and he says to him, you know, uh, Dave, isn't your son Stephen working for some photographer now in the summer? Yeah, yeah. Let me know. The guy's a real, uh, said, gone if he's a crook. I said, what are you, who was he working for? Oh, some guy named Jay Maisel. He goes, your son's working for Jay Maisel? He goes, yeah, yeah, the guy's really screwing me, taking advantage of the poor kid. He goes, Dave, let me ask you something. If Stephen was a musician and, you know, uh, Leonard Bernstein asked him to work with him for the summer, what would you think? My father goes, oh, Leonard Bernstein, that would be fantastic. And he goes, my father's friend looks at me, he goes, Dave, he goes, Jay Maisel is to photography what Leonard Bernstein is to music. And I was like, that was it. My father got it after that. So uh, anyway, that started my relationship in the bank. And in fact, my wife, Betty, who Jay met before my parents even did, came into the bank. I had all these incredible sort of personal experiences in the bank. But I think the the most personal experience was the time that I would spend there, whether it was after hours, I I would, you know, I would get to work at eight o'clock in the morning. I would see Honestly, I would actually see Keith Haring finishing one of his barking dog drawings on the sidewalk wow. in, in 1979. I would see Samo riding, Shabu Shabu Squat riding Samo on the bank building. When I would go for coffee at 7.45 before I, I'd buzz Jay to get into the building, I would see Louis Nevelson having a cappuccino in the same coffee shop I would. I would watch her every day and I would just just to study her. She was so beautiful. She was so elegant. And, you know, she would have that slow, she would just sit at one table and she would just take this slow sip of her, her espresso and just, you know, oh man, it was like, you know, it was just, it was a magical place. The Bowery was a magical place and I was in it right at the peak of everything. And although everybody else thought it was the, the bottom of the barrel, as an mm-hmm. artist, it was it was like Berlin is now, you know what I mean? It was the most happening time to be down there. And so I would come into the bank and I wouldn't leave till 11 o'clock at night. And what part of the reason was I would drop film off at the messenger. I talked about earlier fleet messenger. And then when the film would come back, I would send hours and I would set up and I would look at every single role of Jay's film. That was my whole thing. Like I, I was, um, I didn't just like set up his film. I would actually look at every single picture. And when he would, you know, by, by about 10, 10 o'clock, it usually take me an hour, uh, 1030. He, he would say, Hey, you got my film kit. I go, yeah, yeah. Bring it. I go, by the way, I would say to him, you got this amazing shot of this guy. And on, on roll number nine, you have this incredible shot of this light reflecting. And he'd go, wait a second. You looked at everything like that. He goes, yeah. He goes, why don't you come upstairs and sit with me? We can edit. And that was the beginning kind of, of our whole foundation of our relationship. And, and so I, um, 
in that process of spending these hours upon hours in the building, I would go and I'd walk up and down the floors and I'm curious. And Jay Mm -hmm. loves people that are curious. And the bank was designed for a curious eye. And so the bank was essentially every floor. And I describe it in the film was almost like a level of Jay's brain. The building was a compartment compartmentalized vision of the way his mind sort of works and sees the world. It was a living art object in a sense. And everything he collected connected to seeing and beauty and things. He finds beauty in everything. And it was through his act of looking at it. If it was beautiful, I need that. I have to have that. And suddenly that would become part of the collection. And then for me, it was about going from floor to floor and constantly thinking I saw something when I hadn't seen anything. And so, I mean, you know, to this day, and you know how many times I've looked at my own film? I can't even tell you. But when we, there's a, there's a, a, a this, this crazy shot we did, a, a, a you know, a, a motion control. It looks almost motion control, but believe me, it's a poor man's motion control. But we, we, we did a, a, it looks, you know, it's, it's pretty much a dolly shot uh, across all the objects on the fifth floor. To this day, as the camera rolls, there's stuff I, I still never recognized before. It, I, I'll, I'll discover something new in yeah. it. I think that's what it was about for me um, in Byronix. I think it was about the act of discovery again. It was about the fact that every time I would look at something, the light would change in a room. I would see, you know, his, the, the fact his study of color. You could see Joseph Albers in his windows, you know what I mean, in the way he would put things together. You know, Jay had this way of taking all the things, all the influences that sort of um, funnel into his uh, life, into into his mind's eye, and he would be able to create them um, almost sculpturally within the, each floor of the bank. Yeah. So the bank was this wonderful gift that I think when you got into it and you allowed it into your soul, it took hold of you in a way that was just really powerful. It affected the way you looked at the world through the bank. You know, the bank was almost, one of my friends says this, and I, and I think it's so true. Do you think Jay made the bank or do you think the bank made Jay? Ooh, really? You know, interesting. And it's, it's interesting, right? You've been there, yeah. you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? Think about what it is as an artist to be able to have 72 rooms, 35,000 square feet of basically a sandbox to play in and collect things and have a table that you can build something on and come back five years later, and it's still exactly in the same place. <laughs> you know, that, that was the gift of the bank, you know. It, it seems like he recreated the, the stage that he found in the street from which so much of his imagery was made, mm-hmm. and he brought it into his house. Yes. So he could. So he would never have to leave if he wanted that experience. Exactly right. No, that's you've hit it. That's exactly right. I mean, I think so many of the objects were things that uh, a. If it was like he talks about this, he had this lead pipe that he had to leave in a in a cigar store, and then somebody had to he paid somebody fifty bucks to bring it back to the bank. You know, there was sometimes there were things that he just wanted that he couldn't photograph that he knew at some point in his life he'd want to photograph. You know, and so it 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 all is connected to his, um, you know, his visual hunger, you know, which is, I mean, he's a relentless collector uh, of objects. And I think all photographers are, to be honest with you. I mean, I would say I'm a relentless collector of moments. That's what I do. That's why mm-hmm. I can photograph, you know, I spend, you know, 36 hours taking pictures from a single point of view over time. That's not a normal behavior, right, for most people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most, most people look at me and they go, do you think you could watch TV for 36 hours? I don't think so. You know, even with 400 channels, you might have 
some boredom in that. But I, I just like to look and capture moments. But and I think that's um, I, I think that that's one of the elements that I think affected me uh, being there was this idea of. Uh, that there could be such power in the act of collecting. And we, you know, he always, we tease each other because he, there were certain diseases that he's given me, you know, that I am very open about. <laughs> um, one of them was a thing called repromania. When, when, uh, when I first got there with Jay, he was doing a thing where he was every single tear sheet, any ad, any end report, anything the guy did, he didn't get one or 10 copies of, he'd get 200 or 2000 copies and he would store them you know, in file cabinets, uh, you know, we know from, you see the film, I don't want to spoil right. how many file cabinets he has. And, and then, you you know, you realize he would do a thing called, um, if you called him, you were interested in hiring him for a job. He would, he, he called it a mini portfolio, a mini folio. Well, the mini folio turned out to be this, this box that was about, you know, 24 by 36. And in it was like hundreds of tear sheets that they would, anything that Jay felt was relative to whatever the job was. So he was doing this like very interesting kind of self-promotion, but instead of like, you know, like nowadays you show it on your website, right? Or you right. send somebody mm -hmm. a PDF. Jay was physically, shit. you know, he had 5,000 copies so he could share it with anybody, you know? So it was kind of an amazing thing. He gave me that disease in the early part of my career. My wife had to take me through some oh. hard therapy lessons before I realized <laughs> that I don't have a 72 room building to accommodate this new, you know, collection activity that I had. So. It's conversations like this one that make doing this show so special. It's not just about getting the chance to talk with photographers who I admire, but having such a good time doing it. I miss hanging out with people in person, but these conversations can sometimes make up for the fact that I'm stuck at home, like so many of you. And I'm so glad that I'm able to share these conversations with you, whether you're in the US, Canada, Australia, Brazil, Norway, Dubai, Nigeria, or South Africa, just, just to name a few. I don't think I could have imagined when I first started that I'd be reaching so many people, but I'm so grateful for that today. I'm especially thankful to the many of you who go the extra mile to support us financially, though it's only a fraction of the thousands of people that subscribe to the show, your contributions are making a huge difference. And if you haven't already, why don't you come on board today and help us to make the Candid Frame possible? You can do that by contributing as little as $5 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame. If you haven't done so already, please join us today. Thanks. Well, you didn't have much time in which to create this film. No, you know, six, months. Soon as you, six yeah. months. So yeah. this is your first documentary film? Yes. Is that yeah, right? First, first okay. Film, yeah. So, yeah, first you have a lot of skills as a photographer in terms of big productions. This is a whole different beast. So... Oh. Tell me about the challenges that you faced in pulling this off. Well, there were a lot of challenges. I mean, I, I did it because I really love the guy. You know, I'm, he's, he's just a, he's a special human being. And I see him a certain way. And when I heard about, you know, I used to tease him all the time. I used to say to him, you know, man, if you ever sell this building, 
I'm going to definitely film the move. This is going to be the mother of all moves. And he goes, yeah, 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 man. Don't worry. I'm not selling the building. And it was kind of a back and forth joke. We always, I, honestly, mm-hmm. I used to kid him about it all through the 80s into the 90s. I mean, I was constantly jabbing him about it. And, you know, as 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 he sort of left the commercial space when he was about 65, he stopped really doing commercial work. You know, the business had gone to work for hire. And Jay just didn't want to deal with that shit anymore. He just, you know, Jay was really a, a really inspiring leader, I think, in terms of photographers' rights. I don't know how many people really know that about what an incredibly acute businessman he was, not just for himself, but also for trying to set the bar for others. It's something he taught me, and and, and we used to speak a lot about that. And, and so as a result, when the business really went south, he left it. You know, we used to talk a lot because kids know his income would change, and he didn't really have the big jobs coming in, and he had this mm-hmm. bank that was bleeding money, you know. I used to say to him, hey, man, why don't you rent out a floor or something? And no, 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 I I can't. I'm I'm nervous. Somebody's going to start a fire or somebody's going to break in. You know, he was very private, man. He never really wanted to share it with anybody. And be that as it may, you know, he was selling stock still. He was still doing stuff. And then he started doing workshops and he became hugely successful doing his workshops at the bank. And then uh, at the ripe age of 84, uh, all these years later, he calls me up on the phone one day and says to me, I got to sell it, man. can't keep it. I can't can't afford to keep it Mm. anymore. And I go, are you kidding me? He goes, no, man, I got to sell it, Stephen. I really, I got to sell it. And I said to him, it it was instantly, I knew, I said, listen, you got to let me film the move, man. You got to, I go, what are you going to do? You know, the store, what? There's no story here. I I, I said, Jay, Jay, I'm going to tell your life story through the move. You just got to let me do it. And he hemmed and hawed, but I'm the only person he would have let do. And he let me do it. It was, um, quite a challenge. We did it with a really skeleton team. I had a young cameraman, uh, you know, uh, Jason Green, who was Steadicam. My assistant at the time, um, uh, Chris Janich, was, you know, really adept at helping me uh, on the ground. And he he could film, he could do audio, he could do everything. And we just went in with a skeleton team like this and basically embedded with Jay as this whole process started to unfold. And in the beginning, to be frank with you, we all thought the deal was going to fall through because, you know, Jay taught me something early on in life. And he said, listen, kid, he says, if you're afraid to walk away from the job, then you'll always make a bad deal. If you're not afraid to walk away, you'll never make a bad deal. And he was even in this position, he really I think in his heart of hearts, he never wanted to sell the bank. So his his whole attitude was. My way, highway. That's it. It's my way or the highway. And it was this very, very big New York developer who thought he was, you know, going in, going to negotiate with this 84-year-old guy who was somewhat of a hermit and, you know, had was living in a, in a building that barely had any heat and was wearing a jacket every day, you know, down jackets, uh, you know, and all this stuff. And, and Jay just was, you know, he didn't realize who he got you know, who yeah. you're dealing with. Uh, Jay is, is a whole nother ball game. You know, Jay doesn't, you know, act or uh, have the energy or the savvy. And, you know, he's just an amazing, uh, amazing businessman. And, you know, also beyond being an amazing artist. And, and so that the, the whole process became quite fascinating and then it happened. And then, and then it actually really happened. And then the reality set in about five months, uh, about after the first months of filming, first six weeks of filming, reality set in and then we knew oh god oh god this is this is really going to happen now and i realized then that i wanted to create these interviews with him 
which was really going to be the, you know, the thread uh, through the film of our relationship, uh, of the conversations we had. You know, you are very gifted at the way you get, uh, I think, any of, you know, as an interviewer. Uh, I think part of being a great interviewer is being a great listener. Walter Cronkite told me that when I was in 10th grade, I interviewed him. And I sat there with a dear friend of mine, and we both read notes and asked questions with every question was based on what we written, wrote down. Right. And Mr. Cronkite looked at us, and this was, it was an incredible experience because it was the day that Chet Huntley had died, uh-huh. you know, his uh-huh. colleague on NBC News. He looked at us, he gave us an interview on the day that he, he was writing a eulogy and it was two o'clock in the afternoon. He could have said, I'm sorry, kids, you guys are high school students. Come back in a week. I'll, I'll see you then. But he said, no, I want to see you. And we, he spoke to us for almost 30 minutes in his office. And after we asked him all these questions right off our papers, he looked at us. He said, tell me, boys, what do you think makes a good interview? And we were like, we started looking at our notes going, oh, we were on, no. I'm not expected to have Walter Cronkite ask us a good question. He goes, I'm going to tell you what makes a good interview, being a good listener. If you're a good listener, you'll always know the next question to ask. Yeah. That was like one of those aha moments for me. I think as I began to do this film, I realized that there there was this balance that I wanted to strike, which was part of what makes it unique is my relationship with Jay and the kind Mm -hmm. of connection we have. And that kind of give and take that we go through that I wanted to bring you and the audience into that experience. Right. So you get to sort of see inside his mind and inside the relationship a little bit of what it's like and also really begin to understand why he is the way he is and how he works. And and also, I think the whole effect that the bank and what the bank was. And in a way, you two have to fall in love with the bank. So that was the great challenge. Right. To be able to. Uh, allow myself, I had to be, I wanted to be in the film, but I didn't want, I, I was not interested in the, the film is, is, is really about it's Jay and it's yeah. my relationship with Jay, but that's just one of the threads in the film. It's really for me about uh, being able to have you, Jay's easy to fall in love with five minutes of listening to him. Everybody loves Jay. The building was much harder for me to get you to fall in love with in a strange way, because you, you, you maybe not because you've been there, mm-hmm. you were already had a predisposed idea of what the bank really was. But for anybody else who'd never been to the bank, I had to sort of create that kind of an emotional connection uh, to the building in a way. And that was the great, the great challenge. So, and I, and I think we were able to do that. And through some great gifts, like the wedding scene and, you know, uh, being able to share some of the personal memories that I had and Jay had in the building. Um, I think everybody sort of in the, and when you watch the film, you begin to have that kind of emotional connection. And I think that was just something I really wanted to do, but I, I knew in my heart of hearts the, that once this place was dismantled, We'd never, ever see anything like this again. I truly no. believe that in New York, you'll never mm-hmm. see anything like this ever again. So it was a, just a, a magical place, which, um, you know, again, I had no experience making films, really. Uh, I had done some directing, uh, commercial directing. RSA represented me sometime in the 90s. I did a few TV commercials. But it, that was the extent of it. And honestly, I left film in those days because I... I I wasn't interested in, you know, it was like, oh my God, there's so many people involved. You know, it was just overwhelming. I said, I just wanted to go back to my camera. I wanted to have that kind of <laughs> isolated kind of solo experience. But over the last five years, I had been watching documentaries evolve and I, and I started to really get into 
you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously curious. And if you're curious, you like watching documentaries because you learn something new every time you watch one. So I started to see the medium change in a way that was really interesting. It was going away from just talking heads. There was this whole new sort of wave that people were developing a narrative way to tell stories that are, are documentary in style. That excited me. And then when Jay said it to me, it was like, boom, that was the intersection. I had to make this film. Anytime you've lived in a place for a very long time, it becomes more than just the place you live. You know, it's, it's a place that's associated with so many moments in your life. And here, Jay had been living there for, for decades and was having to leave so much behind. And as you said, you know, you interviewed him throughout. But during those interviews that you have, and even moments that you had off camera, did you learn anything new about Jay that you didn't know before? Absolutely. I think that was, those moments were very powerful. Um, I think when he spoke about his father, you know, and when his father was dying, and then it was at that moment, I knew why at that he was, he was completely obsessed with shooting through the entire move process to the point where it was almost like I realized that it was so obvious to me that this was his escape. You know, it was, it was his way of dealing with all the stress because, you know, you know, I don't want to give away the whole film for people who haven't seen it, but there, there's so many poignant moments in the film where it comes to that moment where he speaks to this, uh, I think, into the concept and the idea that uh, as the act of photographing, what that means to him, you know, do, do you like, as he says, do you like to take pictures or do, do you like to look at pictures? Choose mm. one. I've always loved to take pictures. And the act of photographing for me is always what it's been about. And I'm sure it is for you as well, hearing you speak about what we spoke about earlier. And I think for Jay, what I was witnessing was, and what I tried to go inside of, was the why he does what he does. And, and then, and you, the viewer, get to witness that in a way through these select moments that happen as we're filming. The other thing that was interesting was as my mentor, you know, he's been, he's tough. I mean, he's tough. He's a tough, tough guy. He's not warm and fuzzy all the time. You know what I mean? He doesn't, you know, he's not going to blow you kisses as so many of the people that I interviewed will tell you. Um, he's a straight shooter. And I always was trying to understand what was his mentor like? Like what, you, you know, it, it, behavior for most people is, is learned. You know, you, you have an experience in your life and that becomes the basis of your experiences in that thing. And then you, when you have to sort of do it yourself, you reference what your past experience was. And when he started talking about Joseph Albers, and we started having the real heavy conversation yeah. about color. There's that moment in the film where I ask him, you know, was he tough love? You know, and Jay says, or tough hatred, man. You know, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, okay. Now, now I start to see why you're so tough because listen, that's, that's how he learned, you know, mm. you know, he had, uh, he had a very tough taskmaster as a mentor. And what did you learn about yourself as a result of working on this film? Wow. You know, people always say to me, where'd you get the name and the title of the film? You know, it was one of those great gifts, the way I discovered uh, this draw with um, 
Uh, and again, I don't want to spoiler alert, so turn it off if you haven't seen. Turn this off right now if you haven't seen the movie yet. But I, I, uh, I found uh, Jay had collected every person who's in their entire uh, in his whole career who ever misspelled his name on a letterhead. <laughs> Jay saved. <laughs> so again, yours truly. I'm so curious. I, I one day I was on the fifth floor, and you know we were filming, and nobody was around. I was just by myself, and I was literally uh, pulling open. I love card catalogs. That's another disease he gave me, which was, I love collecting old file cabinets. So I go through this old file cabinet he has, and I pull open a drawer and there it is hundreds of misspelled, literally t- he had ripped out just the uh, address and the name, Gay Maisel, Jay Nasal, all these different names. And in the middle of it was Jay myself. And I looked at it and I was like, Oh my God, this is perfect. You know, because he is so the individual, he is so the iconoclast, right? But there was another thing to it too, which was it was it was myself in the sense of it was you know my deep feeling for this man and my deep feeling for the love of photography and for the the love of New York in a way. I think all of those things are are all woven into this film. It taught me, you know, I think, and I'm sure you found this when you work when you teach in particularly, that it is through that process of having to bring your thoughts together of what it is you do, right? And, and what, what we, how we breathe. <laughs> and suddenly somebody says, could you explain your breath? I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. wait a second, I got to really step back here. I never really thought about it. It's this involuntary thing I just do. But the truth is, when you begin to really think about that and your whole process uh, and your whole connection. And so for me, it brought me back to those early, very, very developmental years of my life, the influence that he had on me. And also, the, I think there was also some of the struggles, too, that I went through, you know, how I had to sort of evolve my own work. You know, one of the things is when you work with a great photographer and a master, there's, there's a process of having to find your own voice. Initially, people look at your work and they go, well, Oh, I can see the influence. You know what I mean? And, and that's natural. That, that, who isn't going to be influenced by, you know, if you work for Picasso, by Picasso, you know what I mean? You, you, you know, it, the, but the truth is, how do you get past that? How do you find your inner voice? You know, how do you do that? I began that journey, you know, right at really, uh, I mean, Jay will tell you, he's very forthright about it. He felt, you know, Stephen, you had your own vision when I first met you, that you, you were like on your way. And, and that's, that was great. But, but the truth is Jay really defined for me the work ethic. You know, I think that was one of the great lessons he taught me. And I think as I did the film, I started to sort of re-experience his lessons in a very deep and meaningful way. And I think that was a gift, you know, I think mm-hmm. um, listening to him, you know, you, you, you know, he's uh, I think one of the, the joys of the film uh, I can't tell you how many people see it more than, I mean, one guy wrote me recently, seven times he's seen it. Oh, easy. And, yeah. And, and he said, every time I see it, Stephen, I get something out of the film, something else I see in the film, something else touches me in the film. And I said, that makes me feel so good. You know why? Because that's what the bank was about. That's what the bank was, right? You've been mm-hmm. there. You know, when you'd go in there, it's like, man, you're going to see something else. Something else is going to affect you. Something else that this man did, you know, through his whole sort of uh, orchestration of this Jay's world affects you in some way. And so 
after the film, we had an opening at uh, Doc NYC, which was so exciting. And I actually was able to rent, believe it or not, the ground floor of the bank for an opening party. Oh, and really? I remember, oh. yeah, it was amazing. You know, of course, it's changed so much since, you know, Jay left. But what was wonderful was Linda, Jay's wife, walked up to me afterwards. And, you know, we hadn't really spoken a lot about the film. And she came over to me and she gave me the biggest hug. She goes, you really got it, man. You really really got it. And I looked at her and I said, it's going to live forever now, Linda. It's going to live forever. Mm, that's beautiful. Let me ask you about your uh, day to night series, which sure. I think is amazing work. Not just, not just in a technical level, because I know you went through a lot in order to create those images, but in terms of some of the things that we've talked about in terms of the discoveries that you make along the way? Because we haven't really talked about your um, your street photography and that whole sensibility that informs so much of what you do. But mm. it's there in that, in that yes, work. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so let's, let's discuss that from that perspective about creating a singular image that is really about a measurement of time, but from the perspective of, it, of, of the discoveries that it provides you beyond just... Um, just because we talked earlier before about the singular image and the body of work, right? Mm -hmm. And this image is sort of an encapsulation of that sensibility in its in single photographs. Yes, yeah, right. No, that's that's exactly what it is. I mean, in many ways, uh, you know, day to night is uh, if you look at the arc of my work from the early photographs I've taken, you know, to the years when I was a street photographer. When I, then I started doing the documentary work with Ellis Island and China and all the different things that I've been doing in terms of the bodies of work day to night is kind of a, I say it's like a, my primordial soup of all of the things that I love about the medium of photography. Primary to those things is if you look at all the pictures, I, I love storytelling, right? That's, I mean, and you've heard that today. I love telling stories. Uh, and so that's a, such a, a major thread in my photographs. It's, I, uh, I try to make pictures that make you feel something, right? And that you want to go deeper into. I think for me, photography has always been, and when you really look at the history of photography, whether it's Duguerre or Carlton Watkins or any of these early, early masters, they want to show you the way they see the world. I mean, that's why we take pictures, I think. At the, mm -hmm. at the core, photography is like, come see this, take a look at this. I want to show you something. I want to, you know, that excitement we talk about is like, look at this, look at this. And so for me, I've been forever fascinated as I've grown in the medium of, a, like, seriously, I've been doing this now for decades. From the moment I started, I've watched this evolution of technology where suddenly photographs, the idea of resolution and detail and information has become more and more amplified. And I feel like in a way I can suddenly things that were never really significant in a photograph that I might've taken in 1978. Now with technology, it's very significant. And the whole idea of like working, I say there's, you can make pictures and then you can take pictures. And early on in my career, I had to, I learned how to do both because when I, I started as a commercial photographer, they pay you a certain amount of money on a given day and you have to deliver the picture. You know, you can't necessarily spend a week waiting for the moment. Um, so all those things kind of informed me uh, and my work. And when I got to day to night, I, I was at a point commercially where I, I felt like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to see if I could just focus 
all my energy on my art, I wonder where I would go. And day to night became the thing that I, it, it's actually what, when it, when it happened. And it, it is something that, you know, I think it's rare in life that you're able to, um, if somebody said to you, if you could do one thing, like for me, it's, it's always been this gift, right? The act of, you know, just photographing is a gift for me. But with day to night, uh, what's so exciting about it is it allows me to channel all my personal passions within the medium. So I, I shoot from the street, right? I love shooting from the street. Well, guess what? I'm a street photographer. I may be like 40 feet in the air, but that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm watching. Mm-hmm. I'm looking. I'm seeing. Moment moment i shoot in the most traditional ways you know a lot of people look at my work and they go how's he doing that is he just setting up a time lapse and having cappuccinos every so many hours and you know it's like automated there's nothing automated you know about what i do it's a single moment that i see with my eye that i feel and then i know i've got something and then i go on and then i focus on something else and as light moves and time moves my eye moves through the scene and that's how i sort of can pay pay attention to what I'm photographing over, you know, sometimes 24 to 36 hours I'm shooting yeah. for. So it is, it is a kind of a, a Herculean sort of way of, uh, uh, but a singular thing where I sit and I make a frame and all I do is look what comes into that frame. That's what I'm witnessing. I don't really, I'm not interested in anything that's really outside my frame. My mm-hmm. pure focus is what's in my frame. So, uh, you know, I know you gave a wonderful interview with Joel Meyerowitz recently. And 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 uh, I think it's so interesting because he talks about how he went from the street to working with a large format camera right. and how your methodology changes when you do that, how everything slows down. Right. And and that is so true. And I, and I there, there is something really special about slowing everything down. And when I slow down enough to record minutes, seconds, and hours of a day, right? When I'm recording that entire thing, I'm bearing witness to that entire thing through one single window, right? One single frame. There's something kind of meditative about it. There's something that's oh, really, absolutely, yeah. yeah, that's kind of transformative about it. it. It actually has affected my perception of time and the way we, we think about time. And, and I think the other thing that has really been a gift is uh, it's informed me in really beautiful ways. You know, the, the idea of looking, like listening, is something I think we don't pay enough credence to. You know, in that is in that, you know, the, the idea that you could glean so much information just through a stream of staring at something. Mm-hmm. That suddenly, suddenly all these things begin to open for me when, when I do these pictures. One of the things that started happening was, you know, I started the work in New York City. It was really like, uh, I describe it as a sonnet to New York, a love sonnet to New York City. I love New York. I love the energy of New York. And I wanted to make photographs that captured that energy. So when I started the series, I got, you know, 40 feet up in the air and I'd be in a crane a lot of times. And I tried to work with views that I start with that are really part of our what I describe as our collective memory. So things that are really familiar. I want to I want to I want you to look at this and go like if if we're talking about this and go, you'd probably say, well, God, he wants to shoot that. Everybody shot that. That's exactly why I want to shoot it. You know what I mean? I love the idea that it's familiar to you because I have this theory about about art. And that is is uh, and, and just anything visual in that sense is that we are so highly evolved as a culture visually now that it's so hard to break through 
uh, and we have certain guardrails already in place, you know, like uh, not, not unlike some, a bias in a sense. And that bias allows, you know, certain things in and it allows certain things not to come in. And when you're familiar with something, there's a inherently you get through that first wall. And so part of what I'm doing is I'm exploring this collective memory, this idea of time. And then I'm also embedding history in a lot of my work. So um, and if you think back of all the various bodies of work I've done over the years, whether it's, you know, uh, Ellis Island history, right? Bethlehem Steel, uh, China, all those things are all if you, you can almost chart them and you can sort of see how I'm taking those concepts, those bodies of work and what the purpose of those bodies of work were, because mm-hmm. all my work is driven by purpose. I'm now folding those elements into day to night. And so what started as a New York experience, really, right, capturing time in the city and a love affair with New York evolved into across America. Then it became a global project. Then I started to photograph wildlife. And now it's focused into really what the main purpose of my work has been um, over the last five years, I'd say, which is capturing endangered species and habitats. Uh, And that's really where I'm looking to use, I think, the the exciting um, nuanced way that I can tell stories and create narratives within this concept and do it in a way that hopefully will inspire people to recognize just how fragile this planet is and what's happening in our world right at this moment. And I think what you're practicing there is a great street photography sensibility. Because a lot of people will make the point, oh, look at how he shows an entire day, you know, from day to night in a single shot and all the light. But for me, what makes those photographs so impactful is all those moments that you have, you know, People fighting Thank with each you. other, people kissing. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's about you know, for people. me too. Yes, yeah, and, and and that for me is that that's the magic of that's the magic of any place. Yeah, it's not the buildings, no, or the architecture as lovely as that may be, and and the great light. It's well, the about, sunset. Yeah, right. It's about right. you're right. It's about what people feel about what they experience in that moment, right? And you're identifying with that, you know. And that's what I hope. Like, I to mm-hmm. me, the great gift is when. Somebody looks at my work, you know, years ago, I did a series for Epson when I launched the technology Epson American detail. And I remember uh, I did a picture in Iowa and uh, it was a farm family and they're all up on this, you know, they're, they're standing on a, a, a big ledge of hay with the dog and everything. And it's just the whole mm-hmm. farm family. And somebody, I, I, I was given a talk and a woman walked up and she goes, by the way, Stephen, she says, are you from Iowa? And I go, no, 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 I'm not from Iowa. She said, boy, did you get Iowa? You really got <laughs> Iowa. You know? and, and I said, that's the greatest compliment. When people who live in a place look at what you've, you know, a photograph, and especially in day to night, and they look at it and they go, oh, my God, I live there. That is so the feeling of, of what I, uh, every day when I get out of bed, this is what I feel. That's yeah. when, for me, it, it, it becomes, you know, it's really special. Then I know maybe I got that one right, you know? Uh, and you know, like, you know, this, we never know when it's over. You know, everybody always asks, well, when did you want to move off that project or that body of work or whatever? But when I do these pictures, what I'm really trying to do is sort of access my mind in a way and my memory. So Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is uh, I actually see the picture in my mind and the process of the editing that I go through and, and, and really crafting the merger between these 
specific moments that happen in time and the balance between day and night. And then the narrative story that's going on in this photograph. These are all things that are sort of in my memory. And what I'm trying to do is bring that memory into that final image so that when you look at it, you get to experience what I experienced and hopefully you get to feel what I felt. And, yeah. and, you know, that's really, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've had a chance when you see my prints in person, but I've got one behind me here, but when the bigger they get, uh, one of the things that's interesting is um, I'm exploring several things in this work beyond the narrative, which I'm very thankful you you're so appreciative of, of the of the story and the and really the street aspect of my work because I take a lot of pride in that to me that is the driver of it but but the other thing that I'm exploring also is that you may not be as conscious of but it, and that is is your the way the human eye sees I'm very very interested in the the act of of what we experience through perception and one of the things in my work is is that um, Photography has historically been defined as a medium that only works within a 35 millimeter frame, a two and a quarter frame, a four by five frame, an eight by 10 frame, 11 by 14, 16 by 20. That's mm -hmm. it. That, that's it. So, right. So the lenses, the lens to film relationship, that's how we see the world through photography, right? Well, with digital, that doesn't have to be there anymore. That doesn't exist anymore. For me, it doesn't. So what I do now is when I look at my, my scenes and when I capture an image, I frame based on what I see. And this is something I'm interested in exploring. And that is, is that I want to give you, the viewer, a sense of what it was like to stand where I'm standing and see this the way I see it. Not the way a camera sees it, but the way I see it. And that's what's so exciting to me about the medium now is, is that for the first time, we are being able to see and, and create photographs that begin to really mimic the way the human eye sees, begin to actually see detail the way the human eye sees, right? And, and, and so that aspect of it, when you can bring those type of um, elevated technologies into the craft of the medium of photography and use them in a way, which is what I'm excited about, to tell stories, to give people a richer emotional experience, a visceral experience, so to speak, when you look at my pictures, that's what I'm trying to do. And and I think you know that I think when people come and see my work in an exhibition, uh, and even when you see my work in the book uh, day to night, you can stare at it and you go into my work. It's I don't want you just to stop at and looking. I'm inviting you in, and you know like uh, like Jay invited me in to the bank and you know how mm -hmm. you you were invited and you sort of looked at the stuff on the table and you got a little closer and suddenly you discovered something else that's what it's about man it's about you know you don't you have to want to look like jay says in the film but in the end real seeing happens only through that act of looking and looking and looking that's when you really begin to see and and then you don't you will not do it unless it becomes like breathing you know, and I sometimes my wife will say to me, you know, you're being rude. I said, no, no, I was seeing something. It's, like, <laughs> if, if, you know, listen, if you had something really cool, as much as I love talking to you right now, if there was some crazy wacko light going on, you'd be oh, seeing yeah. my focus go because that's what I do. I just, you know, and I'm sure you're the same way. You know, um, we, we are these creatures, we're visual artists. And, you know, you get to a point where when 
you know, it takes hold of you. It owns you in a way. I mean, that's part of the magic of it, you know, is that it's just, I, I can't stop. I never want to stop. And I always say, if I do stop, then it's time to put me out to pasture. Yeah. yeah. My final question is to ask you to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Girald de Prege. How do you spell yeah, that? So I'll say it again. It's the daguerreotypes of Girault de Branger. And okay. I'll tell you what, this is the book. It is, I saw these in person and I will tell you what, hands down, he is the greatest photographer I've ever seen. Really? Working in a medium that was probably, maybe it was 12 years old at the time. Uh, he basically invented, um, he was doing vertical panoramas. He was doing, literally invented full panoramic photography. This is in like, let me see what, when he started taking pictures, he, by definition was the earliest major documentary photographer. He actually was documenting architecture um, throughout the, um, um, the Middle East. So the, these works were discovered. Let's see. He was born in a uh, hot Marne in October, 1804. It was really at, right after the advent of uh, the daguerreotype, 1842. His, mm. All of his work was found, I think, in an attic in, in Dijon. It preserved all these plates. The, the guy literally went by himself, can you imagine, and making all wet plate exposures and everything, carried them. I mean, it's, I'm talking like, what, what, like getting to like, the great pyramids in Egypt and doing stuff that, you know, is unheard of from a travel stand. Like even today it would be an incredible feat, but doing it then was just unheard of. And when you see the work, the, the thing that strikes you about it is this is a, again, he's in his whole mind. He's like a scientist, an architect. He's studying architectural design, engineering. That's what his interest was. It wasn't necessarily photography, but it was, his work was driven by this purpose of capturing architecture. And yet his craftsmanship and his skill as a photographer is so extraordinary. It's just, honestly, I, I walked up, I looked at these daguerreotypes and it blew my mind. I, I, I'm thinking, I didn't even know they had lenses that sharp in those days. His perspective <laughs> is perfect on everything. It's just mind boggling stuff. And, you know, he was, um, this is the kind of stuff like he would do. It, it's just just incredible. I look forward to checking that 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 out. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking oh, with so you. It's so great to talk to you. Thank you. This was a treat. Really fun. Thanks to Stephen for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting stephenwilkes.com. And don't forget to watch his great film, Jay Myself, which is available for streaming on a variety of platforms. Beginning this week, I'll be offering an online course through LICP that's called Creating Personal Breakthroughs. This course is designed to help you transition from just making individual photographs into creating bodies of work that can be shared in an exhibition, book, or portfolio. I will teach you how to reconsider who you are as a photographer and how to express that by identifying your strengths. There are a few more spots available and it would be great to have you join us. Find out more by visiting our website or LACP at lacphoto.org. 
And if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. Thanks to NDMA for their five-star review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Bob Bartle, Andy Duncan, Jim Kelly, Sean Bichelle, Norma Dulk, Barnabas Bona, Kristen Emack, Ken Goldman, Lauren McClanahan, Ave Pildes, and Sean Monitor for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>